We are back at the ancient nation of Israel, as I hope we would be. Otherwise, I've got the wrong message in front of me. Back in the day, oh, now listen carefully, way before we had democracy, the cool thing was monarchy. Okay, that, that was the in thing. Everyone wanted to be a part of a monarchy. Even better if you were the monarch. You know, what's his name? Old um, King Charles III had been waiting for 73 years, and he's finally secured his first job. Now, the Israelites back in the day were no different. They wanted a monarchy. They wanted a king because that's what was happening in the nations around them. They were keen to get involved. However, the way they went about it obviously didn't work out the first time. We know King Saul was a little bit of a flop and after him came King David, who was kind of the archetypal king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a man from whose bloodline would come the promised Messiah. So tonight we're going to look at how Israel transitioned from just living as they saw fit in their own eyes, the period of the judges, to being a fully-fledged monarchy with an executive government, somebody that's in charge now and calling the shots, with a king. I'd just like to say from the outset too, this is not a political commentary or an attempt to paint a comprehensive picture of what was going in or going on in Israel at the time. I'm not looking at you know, all the little details about the monarchy. What we need to know is there was a king or uh, Israel wanted a king and there was going to be a king at some stage. I just want to look at the narrative and the good and the bad, what happened and how that applies to us a little bit as well. Okay. So, Let's look at some background to uh, this run-up to the monarchy to get a better understanding. With Joshua, under Joshua rather, the Israelites conquered the promised land. Remember we spoke about the judges last week or Israel being an unholy people. Uh, God gave them the law, God gave them the land, and they're supposed to be a holy chosen people, but they didn't end up being that. They were an unholy people that were indistinguishable from the nations around them. Undistinguishable, indistinguishable. Indistinguishable, I think it's indistinguishable, from the nations around them. They were not, what was our, our key word for last week? Who can remember? Intentional. Israel was not intentional about serving God. So we have about 400 years, some put it about 380 or so, but we have about 400 years without a government. Israel is living largely on their own accord, the people, individual people, I mean, uh, every now and then, God raises up a judge to deliver Israel from her enemies. Israel would fall into sin because they were unholy people. It started off when they didn't drive out everybody as God had told them to do. They left some people in there. And so God left them there to test them. And when Israel was chasing after idols and sinning and not doing what they were supposed to do, God would send them to afflict the Israelites. But God was a merciful God and he looks after his people. He would send them a judge to deliver Israel from their enemies. When the judge died, what happened? The sin got worse. And we looked at the unfortunate pattern in our own Christian lives where we are just using Jesus to feel better about our consciences, to make us feel better about our sin. We do something wrong and then we come to church and we listen to a, a lovely worship song or we read a, a verse and then we're feeling great. And then when that, when that spiritual high fades away, we go and commit even worse sin uh, because we're not actually dealing with our sinful nature. 
We're just trying to feel better about our sin. And it's never going to work like that. And that's what we see in Israel for the most part. We don't see a nation being intentional about recognizing who they are, especially in light of being God's chosen people. They're just getting by like the rest of the nations. And that doesn't work for them. Because when the judge died, when they don't have deliverance, when they don't have those advantages, we spoke about them taking advantage or what advantages that those judges could bring them, they got into worse sin. So we can say that Israel was in a downward spiral. It's not getting better. We talk about a spiral and they're just going downwards. There's no hope. There seems to be no remedy. Nothing is happening. This is their life. Down the line, however, God raises up another judge called Samuel. Remember Samuel the boy who is, hears the voice of God one night and he goes to Eli and says, are you calling me? And he says, no, but it's the Lord, you know. <laughs> Answer him properly next time. On the third time, I think it was. So we read in 1 Samuel 7 that Samuel promises victory over the Philistines if Israel abandons their idols and returns to God. So Israel is being afflicted, this time by the Philistines, and Samuel says, put away your idols. Stop your idolatry, return to the Lord, and watch him work mightily for you. Now this is important because the Philistines are now painted as the main enemy of Israel during this time. The Philistines become a real big challenge, a real big threat to the Israelites. And we see later on in 1 Samuel 13, even this is now when Saul is king. The Philistines did not allow Israel to make weapons. Nobody was allowed to be a blacksmith in the land unless they forge weapons to rise up against the Philistines. So this gives us an indication that the Philistines had some kind of a lordship exercised over the Israelites. The Israelites were the inferior nation, militarily speaking. They couldn't, the, the Philistines called the shots when they wanted to. And this is a problem. Okay. So we see later on in 1 Samuel 8 that Samuel made his sons uh, judges. He appoints his sons as judges over Israel. We have Joel, meaning the Lord is God, and Abijah, or Abiyah, meaning my father is God. Or God is my father. Now Joel and Abiah did not walk in the ways of Samuel. They turned aside after dishonest gain. We read they took bribes and they perverted justice. Time for a name change at home affairs, I think. Now this obviously upset the people. Not necessarily from a moral point of view. But they reject Samuel's sons because they are obviously not fit to lead. They're obviously not fit to call together the people and say, okay, do this, and God's going to give you the victory again. They were not the right people to handle the Philistine problem. And we see that this is an issue later on when we read as well. When they're talking about a king, Israel says, give us a king to lead us. Now, if we look at that word lead, and we read about later on in, in 1 Samuel 8, we see that they're talking about militarily, they're talking uh, from a prosperity sense. How can a king lead us? What can a king do for us? Would Samuel's sons be able to deliver them from the Philistines? Probably not. So at this time, we've got two dodgy blokes who have just been appointed judges over Israel. 
they're by no means spiritual leaders, as their father Samuel is, and they are probably not going to be good military leaders. They're just bad people. And the thing is, sometimes bad people can recognize other bad people. Have you ever found, have you ever found that when somebody needs something, they come to you because you say you're a Christian? Because you say you're a believer. Has anybody experienced that before? If there's an, if there's an issue with, I don't know, a moral thing, somebody's stolen money, or somebody needs advice, they come to you. And they won't go to somebody who doesn't claim to be a Christian. Because the world can recognize that there's a moral authority. They deny it. They want to deny it. They want to suppress it. But even the world can recognize that there's a moral authority. There's something different. You, you stand on high authority. So, obviously, the Israelites could see that Samuel's sons were not right for that. Like I said, there's a lack of confidence in future leadership. And the big problem here is the Philistines. What are we going to do with these guys? I love that word, Philistine. It's, in our modern term, we use it for somebody who... Um, you believe is uncultured in a particular field. <laughs> if you're walking around in an art gallery and somebody makes a horrible comment about a certain picture or portrait and you say, oh, you're Philistine, man, behaving like that. <laughs> so we pick up the story here. We've got a Philistine problem. We've got a poor prospect for, for future leadership. And in the minds of the Israelites, the best route to stability, the best route to military success, the best route to prosperity is a king. Because that's what's happening with the nations around them. They all have kings. You know, they're rising up against us, so something must be going right. They're not in turmoil and strife, or at least not noticeable. So we need a king. Now, there are two points that I want to make. Only two in the sermon, so God willing, I'll be very quick. Every time I say that, I end up going on too long. <laughs> so let me not say I'm going to be quick. Let me say I hope I'm going to be quick. And that's firstly, God had his own plan for monarchy. Now, at, at, when you first read Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, you will see that th what the people said displeased Samuel. You will see that God says, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. So at first glance, it seems to be a negative attitude from God towards the people of Israel. But God had a plan for monarchy. And we look here in Deuteronomy 17, uh, 14 to 20. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Okay, let's stop there. Did they take full possession of it? No. Did they settle in it fully? No. Okay, so there's the first discrepancy. And you say, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, naughty Solomon, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him 
and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. One might think, but when the people ask for Samuel, ask Samuel for a king, like I said, God is not impressed. Yes, that's true. But why does he speak of a king here in Deuteronomy then? Ah, well, God had made plans for monarchy in Israel. We can see here. And we know that God works with specifics. I've said that lots before. God works with specifics. God's not going to want any old king for his chosen people. There's certain criteria to be filled, certain conditions. Here they are. Firstly, God chooses the king. You shall appoint a person that the Lord your God chooses. Secondly, he must be an Israelite. Okay? Fairly obvious, I think. You, know, you don't want some Philistines leading the Israelites. He must be an Israelite. But in what sense of the word? Ethnically, yes. But also... Intent on following God. Intent on being one of the chosen people. Intent of embracing that title of Israelite, of God's child, of God's chosen. Thirdly, he must not acquire many horses, which in this sense means he must not put undue trust in military, in military strength. In other words, he mustn't rely on his army. He mustn't rely on his great herds of horses. It's not about being strong and mighty. That's not going to save you. You can have an army and a great big army, but if you're putting undue trust in that army instead of God, there's a problem. Fourthly, you must not acquire many wives, silver and gold. In other words, you must not put undue trust in physical indulgence or in personal status. So having lots of wives, having lots of money, no, no. Because that's going to take the place of God. That's going to lead your heart astray. Fifthly, you must have a copy of the law from the priests to be a spiritual leader. To be one who's saturated in the word of God. One who's taking the word of God seriously. One who wants to keep the word of God. To be an exemplary Israelite. To be an example, a spiritual leader as a chosen child of God. Remember the Israelites were to be a nation of priests. A holy nation, a chosen people, one set apart, one distinguishable. That's not going to work if your leader isn't being a good bloke in that sense. It's not going to work if your leader, somebody who you're supposed to follow and look after, it's not going to work if he's not living like he's supposed to be living, like God wants him to be living. The rest of the people aren't going to do that either. Like we said last week, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. John Calvin said that. So in a democracy where we vote for our leaders, or in a monarchy where we appoint our king in this sense, because they had to choose a king, are we choosing right? Are we voting properly? We need leaders. We need spiritual leaders. In 1 Kings 2, verse 2 to 4, we see David, he's about to die. And he gives this charge to Solomon, who's going to take over the kingdom from him. 
I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. A few things stand out here too. Firstly, David recognizes the brevity of life. Life is short. Kings are not immortal. Kings are not gods. Especially in the Egyptian sense, we know that Egyptians revere their pharaohs as gods. Kings are just normal people. What did God say in Deuteronomy about a king? He must not consider himself better than fellow Israelites. And that's what David is saying. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, of peasants, of kings, of soldiers, of slaves, of prisoners, of businessmen, of physicians, whatever it be. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So, do what God requires. Just act in obedience to him. And that includes recognizing your position. Okay, Solomon, you're going to be the king now. That doesn't mean anything special in terms of who you are. But God has placed you there. Recognize your position to be a spiritual leader. To lead these people from idolatry. In God's ways. Do what he requires. Walk in his decrees and commands. So that the Davidic line, which was the kind of king that God wants. David was God's plan for monarchy. King David. That was the kind of king he wanted. And we see that throughout the scriptures. So do this so that the David kind of king can remain on the throne. This is not for David's sake, but it goes back to the covenant with Abraham. God chose Israel to be his special people. And Israel, the special people, needed a leader who would walk in God's ways. David recognized his position. Solomon, recognized your position. Your son should recognize his position too, and your sons after that. They didn't. And we're going to get to that next week, the United, oh, the week after that. Sometime then. But recognize your position and do what God commands. How often are we chasing after something else? How often are we wanting something more? How often are we wanting something just to go according to our plans, how we would like them to go? And we, we try everything just to make this thing work. But it's not going to. Recognize your position and do what God commands. Each one of us are spiritual leaders, wherever we are. At home, at work, with friends, with family even. Recognize your position and do what God requires. Lead others in God's ways. So while Israel would look like the other nations in the sense they had a king, they had a government now, they had the structures of everybody else, they would be completely different from them. We look like the world. We are in the world on the outside, we look like the world. We go to work, we go to the shops, we pick up the dog poo, we mow the lawn, we 
say the same things as the world sometimes that we shouldn't be saying. But at the same time, we need to be completely different from the world. What's going on in here? What are we doing with our sinful natures? Do we have Jesus? Are we living like we have Jesus? Are we living in the kingdom? Are we living in a new promised land? Are we still living in the world? Are we still holding on to those other things? Recognize your position. Do what God wants. You might look like others, but you're completely different from them. Amen. This is what a godly king was supposed to look like in Israel. This is what God intended for a monarchy. Not a king who was out to enrich himself and abuse his authority and abuse his power, but a king who would follow God firstly in his own life so that others could follow him to God as well. To be that example so that others could see God. And Israel was missional. We need to remember that too. Israel was not just another nation. This was God's chosen people. Just like I said right in the beginning, I keep hammering it, but we need to have that in our minds. Israel was God's chosen people. They needed to be different. They needed to be seeking God. They needed to be serving God. They needed to be doing what God required of them, to be a light to the nations. And they weren't doing that. Now they wanted a king. But if they were doing that, and they had a king, just imagine Do we not have a king? A name that is above every other name? A name under all authority under heaven and on earth has been given? To whom all authority under heaven and on earth has been given? Jesus Christ. King Jesus. Is he not our king? Are we not his people? His children? His chosen people? Are we not now the nation of priests? A royal generation? We've got our king. So now the question is, what are we doing with our king? Secondly, Israel had their own plan for monarchy. On the other hand, Israel had their own plan for monarchy. Now I could stop here. I mean, we can see where this is going. But let's have a look. 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 9. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old. I love how to the point they are. Eh? That, that would probably be considered rude now if we had to say something like that. But this is practical. <laughs> you're old. You don't have lots of time left. And your sons do not follow your ways. In other words, we don't have leadership. We've got a problem here. So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the nations have, all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Why? Well, probably because the people rejected his sons. So obviously that's a little bit Aina. But also Samuel can see where this is going. You oaks haven't been living the most righteous lives and now you want a king to be like the other nations. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. In other words, forsaking Samuel, just we don't 
you know, irrelevant now. We need a king. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, uh, what he will claim as his rights. And as you can read on and see what those are, he's going to take some of their men to be chariot drivers and some to run in front of the chariots. And he's going to take a tenth of their crops and stuff in tax and what have you. And he will take their daughters to be barmaids and dancers and all sorts of perfume makers. I think it says there too. So let's unpack a couple things here too. A judge and a king are not the same thing. The people here feel that the judges are irrelevant. They want a king now. And a judge was appointed by God, like Samuel. Um, in any case, the people were worried about Samuel's sons to lead. Rightly so, they weren't good people. But instead of requesting a God appointment, they wanted a man appointment. Give us a king to lead us to be like the other nations. You know, we want, you're not working out for us anymore. You're getting old. We don't see God doing anything. Or we, do, we don't want to consult God. Let's carry on. They wanted Samuel to be, give them a king because a king could be chosen by man. The king could be chosen by them or rather appointed by them. Remember God said, select a king or appoint a king that God chooses. But God hadn't chosen a king. They want to appoint their own king and choose their own king. And the reason for this request is sinful too. Give us a king such as all the other nations have. Now we know God said in Deuteronomy, when you conquer the land and settle it and say, give us a king like all the other nations, that's not a sinful request because the premise behind that is that they're in the land, they've settled the land, and they're living as God wants them to live. So in other words, we could look at that as saying we need a government now just to help us along a little bit. We want a king to follow so that we may be brought closer to you. But from the time that he brought them out of Egypt, they have rejected him. They have forsaken him. Now they want a king to be like all the other nations. This is a sinful request. They don't want a king to lead them to God. They want a king to fit in. How often do we shipwreck our faith because we are trying to fit in? How often do we lose our sight, sight of God because we are trying to be like the world? So many people who profess to be Christian have lost their way because they are trying so hard to keep up with the latest conversations, the latest trends, the latest ideologies. <sighs> This whole thing, I mean, we're in June now. I'm pretty sure you know the month of June is special to a certain group of people uh, where what used to be considered a sin is now celebrated. Uh, we're talking about pride. Now, in America, a beer company decided to use a uh, transgender person to advertise for their beer. Their sales dropped something like 20 to 30% within the first week or two. There are photos now of liquor stores where the whole, their section is just full up and everything else is empty. So, are you trying to fit in and be like the world? Now that's probably not a very good analogy <laughs> with liquor. But let's just think of our own hearts for a minute. When we're trying to keep up, and it's subtle, there's subtle things, you know, things like WhatsApp. You know, 
when what came out, whenever long, however long ago it was, we all thought, okay, WhatsApp is great. We're on WhatsApp. We can talk to each other nice and quick, or Facebook even before that, whatever. Now we're always trying to keep up, but at what point do we put the, our foot down? At what point do we say, okay, what's right and what's wrong here? Because with all this information we have, with the media advancement and progression that we have now, we blur the line. At what point do we stop? I'm not saying WhatsApp is wrong. I'm using that as an example. But at what point do we say this new conversation, this new trend, this new ideology goes against the word of God? I don't want a part of this because this goes against the word of God. At my home cell last week, we, we like to look at false teachers who are very popular, especially with the youth. And we just go through their sermon and write down notes. And I'm very encouraged by how many points that these young people can come up. I'm, I'm also a young people. <laughs> but how us young people can come up uh, with, with some of these, um, with these points. And say, this is not what the word says. This is what the word says. That's heresy. And one of these guys started off by saying, okay, his whole thing was about redefining terms. You know, how do we redefine terms? And he started off by saying, as you know, so as, like it's a given, like it's a given. As you know, we need to redefine these terms, these biblical terms, to fit our modern progressive way of thinking. We need to take God's word and look at it through the lens of our modern, progressive way of thinking. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? How can you do that? Are you going to toy with a God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever? The immortal God? The creator? Are you going to exchange the truth about God for a lie? for creation, for images. God's response to Samuel, give them a king. Their first issue is that they have rejected me. They have not served me properly since Egypt. This is God's saying. They have not become the holy nation that he, I intended them to become. So let them continue on this path of disobedience, but warn them nonetheless. In other words, don't say I didn't warn you guys when it goes south. But we also know that God had a plan for monarchy on his own terms. But Israel did not want a monarchy on God's own terms. Israel redefined those terms to suit themselves. We might read that God picked Saul, which is true, but we also read that he regretted making him king. Not in the sense that, oh, okay, that was a, a bad choice. I shouldn't have done that. Because God knows what he's going to do. But rather that kind of emotion that is expressed there. Because God picked Saul as an example of what Israel wanted. So Saul was an example of Israel's plan for monarchy. God said, okay, you can have a king. This is what your king's going to look like. There you go. That's what you're going to have. How was Saul introduced? Tall and a handsome man. Oh, these are things that appeal to the flesh. Tall, handsome, like none other in the land. 
yet he hid between the luggage at his own anointing. Do you remember that? When the people get together to anoint Saul and make him king, he hides in the luggage. Compare that with David, young, ruddy, good-looking, but insignificant, overlooked. I've got another son, but he's out looking after the sheep. Yet able to slay the giant Goliath because he believed in God. Because God was his priority. Saul was God's example to Israel of what their plan for monarchy would be. And David was God's example to Israel of what his plan for monarchy would be. Now at the beginning of the monarchy, we know ultimately it went Israel's way. But as we shall look at next week, God rose up David. And we can see how well they did then. In Isaiah 13, 9-11, Read the prophet saying, you are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger, I gave you a king and in my wrath, I took him away. Yeah, have your king. But watch how quickly I can bring him down. Where is your king that he might save you? Church, where are your ideologies that they might save you? Where are your idols that they might save you? Where are your cutesy scripture verses on your wall that they might save you? Where are your hero pastors that they might save you? It's all about him. It's all about God. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now this was true of Saul and many of Israel's kings that forsook God. A king could not save the people. What we make into kings. When we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. I want a king to help me with this. To help me with that. To help me feel better about my sin. To help me feel better about that. I want a king. But a king cannot save you. God will give you your king in his anger. God, in Romans uh, chapter 1, God gave them over. King's not going to save you. It's going to push you into deeper sin. Our kings at least. But praise God that we've got another. Praise God that we've got a mighty king, King Jesus, who can save us, who went straight for the heart condition, who can fix us here and not yeah. So to conclude, God chose Saul not because he fitted God's criteria, but because he fitted Israel's criteria. God said, fine, here you go. So the monarchy in Israel began on a poor foot because they did not go about it according to God's plans and conditions. They instead opted for their own terms and conditions. I'm a Christian. I, I serve God. I know he's got a plan for me. But I can do this really well. And I see a path there. And if I do this and this and that, I can get rich quick here. I can go there. I can get this car. I can live there. Okay, there's another business interest here. 
this church is okay, but they talk a lot about, you know, sin, and I don't, I'm not really interested in that. I mean, I know I kind of, I have a little bit of sin, but I don't really like to hear about it. Let's go with the good things. Let's go with the nice things. These kings look glorious and promising. Yes. Kings cannot save you. Only Christ can save. Amen. The thing is, it did not start with wanting a king. It started when they forgot about God and became like the world. It started in Egypt when God called them from sin. God called them out of Egypt. God revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai. And it started when they thought, yeah, okay, thanks God, but it's easier to to do this. Be like the world. And in fact, it's not even easier. It's like I spoke about last week. We don't want to look at living uh, in terms of difficulty. Is it an easy or difficult thing to do? No, it's because of our sinful natures. And our sinful natures gravitate towards the things of the world because that's what we are used to. That's our nature. What are we doing with that? Are we asking God into our hearts to fix that? Is Christ, is his blood enough for you? Is he your savior? Or does he just help you feel better about yourself and your nature still pulling you towards sin? A king to Israel was just the next step in this process of forsaking God. It was really just the next step. They'd gone about it for 400 years. Every time they kind of got saved, they fell into even worse sin. Now they didn't kind of have that anymore. So, okay, well, let's do the king now. Let's try king. He can save us from the Philistines. There's no future here with Samuel and his sons. The pressing aggression of the Philistines, like I said, failure of Samuel's sons. This was the next step. Give us a king, you know. Do be like the other nations to help us over here. It was not give us a king to lead us in truth and righteousness. It was not that they settled the land like they were supposed to. And so that's the beginning of Israel's monarchy. God had a plan for monarchy in Israel. He had a plan for monarchy in Israel. And we know that because of King David and King Jesus, who's of David's line. And yet Israel had a plan for a monarchy in Israel. God has a plan for salvation. We have a plan for salvation. Just stick with God's plan. Just stick with God's plan. Let's stop trying to work things out. Let's stop trying to be like the world. Let's stop trying to fit in as a church especially. We don't need all the bells and whistles. We don't need the fancy things. Yes, it can be nice. It can work out. But where's our heart? Are we serving Christ or are we serving man? Just stick with God's plan. Stick with God. 